as uh, we take our Bibles, Matthew chapter 21, want our children to make their way to Children's Chapel and have a good time worshiping the Lord there. And thank God for those that serve in Children's Chapel. I'm so thankful for those that are faithful to that. Matthew chapter 21, look at verse number 33. A few weeks ago, we started a series of messages uh, dealing with the days of His passion. Looking at the last few days of our Lord Jesus' life before the cross. So much in one week. Nearly, nearly a quarter of all the gospel accounts deal with one single week in the whole span of His three and a half years of ministry or 33 years of His life. One quarter is dedicated to one week. God wants us to know what takes place in that week. It is vitally important. We've been focusing in on that for the past few Sundays. And today, I want us to look at a day of confrontation. A day of confrontation. We looked at a day of of declaration. Jesus declares Himself as King uh, in His actions, in His attitude, what took place that day. We saw last week a day of inspection. Jesus looks at that fruit tree, looking for fruit. He looks at the temple, sees it defiled. And there was a day of inspection. Today, we look at a day of confrontation. Matthew chapter 21. Would please stand in honor and reverence to the precious Word of God. Matthew 21. And look at verse number 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a certain household which planted a vineyard and hedged it about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took this, his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, and more than the first, and they did unto him them likewise. At last all of all he sent unto them his own son, saying, They will reverence my son. When they husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and they cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They said unto him, we will, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said unto them, Did you never, hear, did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever the stone, the, it shall fall will be ground, ground him in powder. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. A day of confrontation. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray you bless your word. God, speak to hearts. Father, I pray that you would see through my ramblings into the hearts of men and women. God, that they may be pricked in the heart and come to Jesus Christ. May, may Jesus be presented in all the clarity of the gospel, all the purity of God's love this morning. God, I pray that those that hear the good news of the gospel would fear the wrath to come and they would come and bow themselves down at the feet of the one that died for them and rose from the grave. Father, speak to hearts in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Several years ago, uh, my family saved up enough money to take a trip to Disney World in Florida. We spent several days going from park to park. The crowds were mild. They weren't that bad. The weather was fairly comfortable, wasn't overly hot. We met as many of the Disney characters as we possibly could. We rode all the rides that the time schedule could fit. The meals were wonderful. The room was small, but it was enough for my family. 
But if you ask my children, what is the most memorable event of that trip? It will not be their encounter with Donald, Goofy, or Mickey. It won't be the Space Mountain, the Test Track, or the Rock and Roll roller coaster. As a matter of fact, what they're likely most to vividly remember didn't even happen in the park. It happened on the way to the park. We bear this. You, you listen to conversation. We talk about this trip. It comes up time and time again. The thing they've talked about most is the moment I nearly killed my family. Now, now, to be honest with you, their most vivid memory would have been the accident we almost had. Now, now listen to me very closely. I'm going to try to clarify what happened. All the way down to Florida, there had been two-lane northbound traffic, a wide median of about 50 yards, and two-lane uh, southbound traffic, all right? So all this time, I'm driving on a freeway, opposite traffic on 50 yards away. But for some reason, as we neared Orlando, we came off of that freeway, and I, in my mind, was still driving on a two-lane freeway with a median and another freeway on the other side. So we're getting it down the road. I'm behind a person. I say, well, they're going too slow. I'll get in the passing lane. And I'll just cruise on past them. I'm driving down the passing lane. And there is, dead in front of me, a black SUV. Driving just as fast in the opposite direction as I'm driving in this direction. I look at my wife. I say, would you look at this idiot? He is coming down the wrong way of the freeway. This is an idiot. He's going to get somebody killed. All of a sudden, my wife and her eloquence proved who the real idiot in the situation was. I quickly jerked the wheel over back into my lane. I was on the, the freeway that was four lanes. Two lanes going this way, 50-yard median. Two lanes going that way was a two-lane county road, and I was the one heading in the wrong way on the road of fixing to come into a head-on collision with an oncoming vehicle. Far none. That is the most memorable moment of the trip. The most memorable moment was a head-on confrontation that liked to have killed my family. Had I not realized and agreed that I was in the wrong, I dare say I would not be here today. But I came to the realization that I was going in the wrong direction. The previous day, Jesus had come into Jerusalem and He had laid hold of the money changers and the tables and the animals and the purveyors of goods in the court of the Gentiles, grabbing them by the nape of the neck and throwing them out of God's house. We saw the, how He cleansed the temple last time and, and calling it the house of God's prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. Obviously, this stirred the hearts of all that were involved. And so day two, when He comes back in, Jesus retired more than likely to Bethany, a place of consolement, a place of, of friendship, a place of resorting. He's making His way back in Jerusalem. This time, the religious leaders of the day are prepared for it. And they begin to encounter Him and, and speak to Him in that day. The religious leaders who would not be caught off guard were heading right for Jesus. And here we see a complete head-on collision between the Son of God and the would-be rulers of the religious world. And they were unaware that they were the ones that were in the wrong. What takes place was enlightening and explosive. A confrontation that ends with the unmasking of their hypocrisy of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. All of the religious groups of that day, Jesus unmasks them in a series of woes. Turn over just quickly to Matthew 23. Look at verse number 13. Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
Verse number 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 15, Woe unto you, scribes and heretics, uh, and heretics, and uh, uh, Pharisees, hypocrites. And on and on, 16, 23, 25, 29, it is a blistering, scathing moment where Jesus condemns the leadership of that day. It was explosive. No one, no one talked to the religious leaders of that day. It would be impossible. Now, I want you to understand this. It would be impossible for me to take this entire day and preach all that took place on this day of confrontation. There was the confrontation of that day. He explained the fig tree. Jesus talked about the fig tree. talked about faith. There's a message there. He talked about the question, the, the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees questioned Jesus' authority. The woes that Jesus pronounced. The two widows' mites that He saw. The Gentiles seeking Christ. The discourse about all the future events. So much happened in that one day. But I believe that the parable that I just read you, if there is one thing that binds the whole day together, it is that confrontation. Jesus came in a head-on collision with the religious world of its day who was not traveling in the way of God, but was traveling opposite to God. The heart of this day is this parable that could be summed up in a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. It may well be that the confrontation that may be raging in your heart this morning, it may be that you are the one that is wrong and you don't know it. You're heading into a head-on collision with the Son of God upon your death and you don't know that you're wrong. You need to be made aware. Just like my wife, honey, you're in the wrong lane. You're in the one that's wrong. You're in oncoming traffic. Get back over. The car's honking. You're going to have an accident. Get out of the way. You need someone to raise a glaring red flag and tell you you're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the wrong direction. There's a threatening ahead. There's a confrontation ahead that you cannot withstand. If you're going down the wrong way in a one-way street, you need to be confronted with your wrong and turned around before disastrous consequences befall you. I want to look at this parable in chapter number 21 and I want us to see three keys to understanding what Jesus is sharing in this brief parable. Number one, I want you to see that the first key is we must be aware of God's generous supply. We must be aware of God's generous supply. I want you to realize that the whole confrontation that Jesus has with these religious rulers is about a question over His authority. Look in 21, verse number 23. Chapter 21, verse 23. And when He was come, meaning Jesus, into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto Him as He was teaching and said, But by what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? The question was really a trap. They wanted to trap Jesus. You see, they wanted to have cause to arrest Him, cause to even put Him to death. And they did this through that question. What they wanted to hear is Jesus say, God gave me this authority. Immediately, all of the ears of the people would be turned off. They would say, religious leaders, you can have them. He's a blasphemer, take him and execute him. They knew if He said God gave him the authority, they could take Him. So He would not give them that satisfaction. Jesus, in response to this question of authority, responds back with a story. He, he began to give them a, an account, a, a parable, if you will. And He duped their tactics with a little story that diffuses their trap. And it's this story of the master and the vineyard and the husbandman. Now I want you to... See, first of all, 
in God's generous supply here, we see a clear illustration. Look in verse number 33 in chapter 21. Here another parable Jesus said, There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Jesus pictures for them a landowner a wealthy landowner who cultivated and established a prosperous vineyard. It had everything required for it to be prosperous. It had the, it had the, the, the vast fields of grapevines. It had a wine press to, uh, to produce the, uh, the very expensive wine. It had walls and towers to protect it from animals and would-be thieves. It had everything. It was lacking nothing. It was a perfect place. You see, it was a place that was lacking nothing. And it was prosperous. It was to be prosperous for generations to come. Israel, the people of God, are often depicted in the Old Testament as a vine or a vineyard. The people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, is seen sometimes as the vineyard of God. Psalm 88 and 9, Thou hast brought a, uh, brought a vineyard out of Egypt, Thou hast cast out and planted it. Thou preparest room before it. Thou didst course it in, and to take deep root and fill the, the land. Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My, uh, uh, my well-beloved hath a vineyard uh, and, and, a, and, and a very fruitful hill. He fenced it in and gathered out of the stones thereof and planted it and the choicest vine. Jeremiah 2, 21. And yet I had planted thee a Noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned to a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Israel is often pictured as the vineyard of God. God had been good to Israel. He had brought them out of the bondage of Egypt's land into a land of milk and honey. God had provided a land where they reaped crops they never sowed. Where they lived in houses they never built. God had protected them with the divine power of His hand. He gave them walls and security. He, by the angels of God, had protected His people down through the ages. They had become prosperous off of God's bounty. God holds a special place in His divine will for the people of Israel. Just recently, the New York Times had an article entitled, Christians loving Jews. The background of the article is about the surprise over the uh, majority conservative uh, Christian uh, House, the uh, House of Representatives in the Senate, coming together, bypassing the White House to invite Netanyahu to come and speak to a joint session of Congress. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? The article was written as the world scratching their heads, saying, "Why?" Do Christians hold such a high regard for a Jewish nation that is primarily secular? That primarily uh, has disowned the God of the Bible? Why do they hold such a place? It's because the Bible holds such a place for the people of God. The article uh, brings uh, to light the theological reasonings why God's people ought to honor those that are the Jews. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't put my stamp of approval on everything that Israel does. Some of the things they do I think may be unjust and downright sinful. But the truth of the matter is they are the people of God. That land is their land. Abraham said, I will bless thee that bless thee and I will curse those that curse these. These have been a blessed people. These have been a people that had had the hand of God upon their nation and upon their lives. This is a people that well know the blessings of God in this world. And God had entrusted into them so much. God gave them the true way of salvation. God gave them the oracles of God's Word. God gave them uh, the precepts of the law of God. God gave them the direct line of the Messiah. Jesus Christ Himself was of the lineage of the house of David and of Abraham. God had given them so much. Given them a prosperous land. At the zenith 
of Solomon's reign, it was like another kingdom on this planet in wealth and prosperity. God had been good to them. You see, it is a, it is a clear illustration. Gee, can we say this? That what Jesus is talking about is Israel. Is the people in which these religious rulers are representing. Notice, second of all, we see a common application. A common application. You see, really the same could be easily said about all of us in this room. Every one of us. I heard a story about a little boy that was going with his mama to the grocery store. They were coming through the checkout line. The grocer had a, had a, had a, uh, a big jar of candy. And he offered it to the little boy. He said, ma'am, can I give your son some candy? She said, sure. And so he offered it to the little boy. And the little boy shyly said, no, no, I don't want any. No, son, take it. It's free. Go ahead, take it. No, no. Look, son, the grocer said, get as much as you want. No, no. Are you sure you don't want some? Then the little boy said, you give it to me. Well, puzzled by the request, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the grocer reached down, grabbed a handful of candy, and bestowed it upon the young man. They went outside the store, and uh, the, mother, the mother was a little puzzled. Why did you make him give it to you? And the son, when they got back in the car, she asked him, why did you have the grocer give it to you? The son said, because his hand is a whole lot bigger than mine. <laughs> Truth of the matter is, God's hand has been so much bigger in our lives. God has been so good and so gracious. None of us are starving in this room tonight, this morning. None of us are, are without shelter or clothing. None of us this morning are suffering uh, to great zeniths of degree. God's been good to you this morning. He's given you life and breath, the blessings of relationship, the blessings of family, the blessings of all that God had bestowed upon His people. God has been good to us. He's been big-handed toward everyone. We too are a blessed people. We too can identify with this parable. If we are going to understand the urgency of this confrontation, we must realize that we too have been blessed of God. Notice secondly, we see not only we must be aware of God's gracious supply in Israel, it's a clear indication or illustration also of ourselves. We've been blessed by God. We've been good. Just as God blessed this vineyard and made it prosperous and made it a great place. But second of all, to understand this parable, I want you to first now be assured of God's gracious sending. Not only of His generous supply, but of His gracious sending. After creating this beautiful vineyard, Look at what it says in verse number 33 at the latter part. And let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. After creating this beautiful vineyard and all this blessing and all this wealth, all this prosperity, all of this goodness, he gave it in the hands of his husbandmen and went into a far country. Now we might think these men somewhere along the line like sharecroppers. The old sharecropping days where someone would own vast swaths of land and they would, instead of uh, tilling it and, 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 and reaping it themselves, they would farm it out to someone else who would work the land and give them so much of a rent, so much of a percentage of the harvest, something to that, uh, to that effect. And so he had left it in their hands. He had entrusted them, these men, to produce the desired and the required produce of the land. He realized God does that with all humanity. You see, He gives them the instruction, the revelation of what would please Him, and then He leaves it up to them to obey all over the world. God does this to every, every person. He leaves them the Word of God. He leaves them the divine inspiration, the revelation of God's Word. And they are given that word and, and they are to determine whether they will obey it or not. God doesn't do police-like supervision over his require, for His required term. He doesn't want a, an army of robots. You know, why doesn't God just make us that we just automatically do what's right? Wouldn't it? Well, that would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? 
if I could not sin. You know, if I was a robot and I didn't have to make these choices and I just, I just, you know, truth in, live the truth. And I just was a robot. I couldn't make any wrong decisions. But that's not the way God is. God's not going to hogtie you and drag you in to the pearly gates of heaven. And what do these men do? What do they do in response to what they've been given? They want to steal it for themselves. They're not satisfied just to have the land and to make a profit off of it and and to live and let live. No, they want it all for themselves. They want it on their own terms. You see, first of all, we see in this gracious sending, we see his servants were abused. Look in verse number 34. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took the servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. The landowner looking to receive the benefit of the property, he he sends his servants. These servants are clearly the prophets of the Old Testament. Israel's prophets. Israel has a long history of mistreating and murdering its own prophets. Listen to 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers rising up betimes and sending because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place and they mocked the messengers of God and they despised His words and misused His prophets until until the wrath of God rose against the people till there was no remedy. You think about the long history of the prophets, just to name a few. Elijah and Elisha were hunted down like common criminals. Uh, 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 We see uh, Jeremiah was imprisoned because of his statements of the coming judgment of God. He was thrown down in a slime-filled pit. Tradition has it that King Manasseh subjected the godly prophet Isaiah to being put inside the trunk of a tree. Then he commanded that the trunk of the tree be sawn in half. Hebrews tells us of that event, alludes to that event, being sawn asunder. You see, it was uh, these were the judgments and, and these rebellious people, they came, uh, God sent messengers again and again and again to them. Look at the patience. Look at the long suffering of the Heavenly Father who did not come the first time His prophets were maligned to bring wrath and judgment upon these uh, evildoers. He sent prophet again and prophet again and prophet again and person again and again and again and again. We see God's mercy and His long suffering in this point. This is still the character of God today. Every steeple that dots the countryside in this area is God reaching out to a rebellious people. Every missionary that walks along foreign highways is an emissary of God's sending for uh, those to be reconciled to Him. Every gospel track, every, every uh, Christian television program and radio opportunity that we have on the airways is God announcing to the world He wants to be reconciled with man. He is sending prophets again and again. I myself find myself in a place this morning where I am that servant. I am that one calling for you to bring forth the fruits that God is absolutely worthy of and requires of of your life. I'll never forget years ago I was preaching down, I was on a Wednesday night preaching down in Hamilton County Jail. I preached down there once a month on a Wednesday night. I knew from the start this man didn't belong or he belonged in that meeting but didn't want to be there. I started in, and he didn't like the way I sung. It was too loud. You could tell. He didn't like the way I preached. The more I preached, the harder I preached, the madder he got, the worse he hated, the more he shook his head, the more he frowned at me and made faces. Finally, at the invitation time, I exhorted all those men to repent and believe the gospel. That man blatantly got up, turned his back to me, folded his arms for the remainder of the service. The only time that's ever happened to me, but I tell you what, there's a lot of people that do that in their hearts every time. Every time God reaches out in grace and in long suffering to the world around us. 
here. He is sending us prophets. Even now, this parable is coming true. It may be for you. You've said no to the Jesus. You've said no to the cross. You have rejected Him. You want Him out of your life. You want these prophets gone. I don't want to hear it anymore. Oh, here we see. Here we see these servants that were abused. But finally, we see the son that was assassinated. The son that was assassinated. Finally, the owner sends his son. Read the statement in verse number 37. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. And when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize his inheritance. And they caught him, and they cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. William Barclay, a Bible scholar, said this of these verses. This parable contains one of the clearest claims Jesus ever made to be unique and different from even the greatest of those that were before. Those who come before Him were the messengers of God. No one could deny that, that deny them that honor. But they were mere servants. He is the Son. You know, everybody wants to say Jesus is a great teacher. He was a great prophet. Jesus Himself here separates Himself. I'm not like any other prophet. Do you see how He said that God gave me this authority? Do you see how He was saying, take this little story and you fill in the blanks? He gave them no cause to arrest Him. No cause to charge Him with blasphemy from their blinded eyes. Yet at the same time, He said volumes. He sent His Son to them and they slew him. They they uh, conspired uh, against him. The original question was, where did you get this authority? Do you notice that Jesus here is answering that question? There is no there is no doubt where this authority came from. He could all they could all attest to the truth of his authority, authority over the disease. He cleansed the leper. He opened the blinded eyes. He made the lame to walk again at his very at the very word of his mouth at the touch of his hand. He had authority over the demons of hell, those of Satan's minions that would grab a hold and plague for decades the souls of men. The very command of Jesus Christ could cast them out of people's lives. Even he had authority over death itself. With the very word of his mouth, lame as death lost its grip, icy grip on those that were raised to life again. But who gave the authority? That's the question. They wanted to Jesus to incriminate himself and have cause to punish him and, and silence him. Jesus then tells a story and says, You fill in the blanks. Also, we know from these words that Jesus had no misgivings of what would take place. Do you see this? Jesus is prophesying His own death. Jesus is telling them that what takes place in Jerusalem is not a surprise. He told His disciples time and time again, and I will be turned into the hands of wicked men and brought before the judges, and I'll be condemned and crucified on the cross, buried in the tomb, raised again. He, he told them again and again and again and again. Now He tells the religious groups around Him that you're going to take the Son and you're going to slay Him. And Jesus will it. What love of the Son. What love of the Son to honor the Father after all, after all the prophets had been slain, after all the prophets had been rejected. God's own Son coming to plead with sinful man. He willingly goes and puts Himself in harm's way for the cause of His Father's love for them. Because of His Father's love for them. Time and time again, he announced to his disciples, he was willingly, he willingly set himself to be sacrificed. The husbandman killed the son. These leaders would indicate, uh, would in, incite the murder of the Messiah. You may be here today and say, oh, I didn't kill Jesus. This, this, this parable don't apply here. But that line stops. They killed Jesus, not me. I'm not the one that had anything to do with this. I didn't kill Jesus. Not so fast. Haven't you tried to keep Him out of your life? 
time and time again. Every time that He knocks to be received in your life, you say no, you reject Him. You want Him out of your life. You want no part of this Savior. You want to be rid of Him altogether. The Scottish divine Horatius Bonar said, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed Him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery." You may not have been there to hold the hammer or to nail the nails or to plant the crown of thorns upon His head, but you are no less guilty. Christ died for our sins. It was our sins that placed Him on the cross. It was our sins that took His life away. Just as much as we had driven the nails into His hands and feet. In that same point, Horatius Bonar says, And yet no less, thy blood avails to cleanse me from my sin, and not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. You might have been the one that nailed Jesus to the cross. Your sin placed Him there, and yet His love and His grace is extended to you this hour. You that said no to Him, why would you not come now? As He continues from the living side of death to plead with you to come to Him, to receive Him as Lord and Savior. Why would you say no again? Here, He continues to plead with you. You can make peace with the landowner today. You can make peace of the owner of the vineyard, the owner of all the blessings you've enjoyed by receiving the Son. Finally, lastly, be aware of God's gracious or God's generous supply. Be assured of God's gracious sending. Finally, be advised of God's guaranteed severity. They had attempted to set a trap for the Lord Jesus. They wanted to ensnare Him in His words. But our Lord turned the tables. Jesus offers them a question. Look in verse number 40. When He comes to the end of His story and the Son is slain, He asked them a question. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will He do unto these husbandmen? Look at their response in verse number 41. They say unto Him, He will miserably destroy these wicked men and will let out His vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render render Him the fruits of the season. Of their season. Jesus offers them a question, they give a response. And in that response, they're entangled in their own trap. Because basically their own words condemn them. They unwittingly and unknowingly condemn themselves. They pass their own judgment. They're the ones that have rejected the Son of the Most High God, the owner of Israel, They've rejected the emissaries of the prophets sent to them. They've rejected the sweet Son of God. Their own words condemn themselves. Jesus then begins to reveal the severity of rejecting the Son of God. Look very closely at verse number 40. We read 40 and 41. And now we see first of all a recompense upon the crime. Look at verse number uh, uh, 42. Did ye never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is God's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Let's skip down to verse number 44. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. They with their own words had sealed their own fate. They were due... The judgment of God. But Jesus goes on to say, have, have you read your Bibles lately? Where He talks about the stone being rejected. You know, that's a quotation from the Old Testament, right? Psalm, 8, Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. This is what it said. The stone which the builders refused has become the head a stone of the corner. It is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Many believe this verse alludes to a situation that took place in the building of the temple. You see, all of the uh, stone that was made from the temple was uh, made and produced far off from the temple, brought in very silently to make that temple, very quietly and make that temple. And one of the rocks that was to be the chief cornerstone, it had, they had indicated it was going to be the very first stone. 
But when it got and arrived on the work site, you know how work site gets confusing sometimes. You got all kinds of supplies and blocks and everything around. They had overlooked it. They had, they had looked at this stone and they had said, no, this is not the head of the corner. This is, and they chose the wrong one to start the building. And it wasn't, and so they're looking at this great stone, this cornerstone, and they think, well, we don't need this. And they toppled it off the side of the hill and it tumbled down into the valley below. But when they end the building of the temple, they realize that they had made a mistake in the very first stone. Where is the real cornerstone? Where is the chief cornerstone? It was down in the bottom of the hill, covered up in vines, and been forsaken. And it was wondrous in their eyes that they had, they had done this grave mistake in the building of the temple. But it's very prophetic. Here, these men are, are rejecting the stone of God that's been sent from by God. He is part, he is the, uh, the entirety of God's plan. And they are mistaking Him for someone else. No one knew. Uh, uh, verse number, let's see, Jesus uh, is that stone which they're rejecting. Verse number 44 tells the implications of rejecting that stone. Look at what it says. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to power. Jesus is the stone they're rejecting. He tells of the implications of rejecting that stone. They will be broken. If they, if they reject Jesus in this life, they will be broken. They do so to their own hurt and damage. But Jesus is also clear. He is also clear that saying no to this stone will also have that stone crushing down upon them and, and puts them in the path of destruction upon sin. Jesus' words are a warning. You have stumbled on this stone and it has broken you in this moment. It has shed light on your plans and what you're doing. Heed the word of Christ. Because Jesus goes on to describe an ultimate judgment that is to come. You see what he's saying? If you reject this stone, you'll be broken upon it. If you utterly reject it, you'll be ground to bits by this stone. Many of you for years have stumbled on the stone of Jesus. What is it? Paul says that he is, the, he is the chief stumbling, stumbling stone, the rock of offense. People stumble over Jesus and who he is and what he has done. He is likened, but here in the end, he has likened himself to Daniel. Daniel, who is uh, Jesus, is the stone cut with our hands that sent from God to strike the nations, to crush the nations, to bring calamity on not only this world, but on the lives of those that reject him. There is a heaven and there is a hell. There is life eternal and there is eternal destruction. If you reject the Son of God, sent in grace, you will incur the crushing weight of God's eternal wrath. We see not only that there is a recompense upon their crime, but there is a redistribution of the kingdom. Notice very closely in verse number 43, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Jesus told them that the land of plenty, the vineyard, that the master would have be, would be of their, the master would be uh, taking it from them and giving it to someone else. The Jews took for granted that they would always have this precious vineyard of the Father, thinking themselves highly that God would never judge them because simply of their lineage. Oh, but God had other plans. In A.D. 70, Titus came from Rome and destroyed Jerusalem. The sacrificial system ceased in that moment. The temple was toppled in that moment. There is no greater evidence of this taking away a kingdom and giving it to someone else than the role of the Gentile in the economy of God. The role of the Gentile in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those that for the most part of history have been considered nothing but dogs. The lowest of the low. The Gentile have been 
have been, they've always been on the outside looking in on the things of God. But now the Gentile has been grafted into the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We who are partakers of God's grace are now those that are, uh, who take God's gracious provision and produce fruit to the glory of God. God forbid, God forbid that we do the same thing that the Jews were doing. That we neglect the fruit. That we think we have some sort of entitlement. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been entrusted with a garden. A garden of God's grace. A garden of God's goodness. Whatever your life may be right now, God has been good to you. And you are to be stewards of that. And to bear fruit unto God. The fruit of righteousness. Fruit of worship. A sacrifice of praise. The fruit of a life of the, to the glory of God Himself. The garden of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our day and time is being traded for entertainment, for therapeutic morality talks and Christless social crusades. Listen, we've got a garden here. And we're to produce fruit for Jesus Christ in the saving of souls, the promotion of the gospel, the love of our neighbor, the love and worship of our God. We're to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Fruit produced from a a living vine of Jesus Christ in our life. A Spirit-filled life of fruit. No greater example of taking that fruit and giving it to someone else than the move from Jerusalem to Antioch. If you read that New Testament, everything shifts away from Jerusalem. The Christian world revolved around Antioch. God took the vineyard away from the Jews and gave it to old Gentile dogs. That's me. That's me. I should have had no part in the economy of God. I got no right to be here today. But God in grace and God in mercy put me in His vineyard. Put me here to serve Him. Put me here to love Him. To do right with what He commands. Right with what He wants from my life. God forbid we do the same as the Jews think ourselves above what we are and take glory for ourselves and refuse God His worship, refuse God His, uh, our participation in His kingdom work? God forbid. God forbid. On Monday, February the 6th, 1995, according to the Chicago Tribune, a Detroit bus driver finished his route, 21, and headed towards the terminal. Somehow he took a wrong turn. He didn't arrive at the terminal at his scheduled time at 7.19. A short time later, the supervisors got worried, started looking for him. Started looking everywhere for this man. Meanwhile, the driver's wife called the terminal and reported that her husband might be a little disoriented from some medication that he'd been taking. For six hours, they looked for this bus. A 40-foot city bus and its driver could not be found. Finally, state police found this bus driver 200 miles from his destination, northwest of Detroit. The bus was moving, uh, was motoring slowly down a rural two-lane road, weaving slightly from side to side. Police pulled the bus over and the driver said he was lost. The police news release said this. The driver had no idea where he was and agreed that he had made a wrong turn somewhere. Apparently, it had never dawned on him that during the four-hour drive, he was heading in the wrong direction until somebody pulled him over. But he's going the wrong way. Could it be this morning? is a confrontation between you and the God of glory telling you you're going the wrong way. There's a lot of atheists out there that are going the wrong way. There's a lot of agnostics. There's a lot of moral people, upstanding, wealthy, that are plain going the wrong way. Has God met you this morning? Has God raised the red flag? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Unless you receive the Son, you will not be delivered from judgment to come. It was a day of confrontation. Let's all stand to our feet.
come to a song of invitation. Could it be that today is a day of confrontation for you? I don't want anybody to go to hell from these pews. Jesus in these last days made it very clear, very clear, what acceptance before God has to do. It has to do with giving God His glory, what is due His name, his, our allegiance, His worship, the fruits of our lives given unto Him, and to receive His Son, whom He has sent. Have you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your life? I beg you, come. Come. Be broken on that stone. <laughs> I've thought about those statements of Jesus, and I don't know how exegetical it is, but I remember the day He broke me on that stone. Broke me on that stone, Brother Bill. Crushed me in that hour and I broke myself on Jesus Christ and gave Him my heart and life. God forbid there be anyone in this room that slip off into eternity where the rock of God's judgment will come down in crushing power, crushing into powder. Crushing to an eternity in hell. God forbid. Have you, been, have you fallen and been broken on this rock? Come to Jesus today. Be broken on the rock of offense. Be broken on this stumbling block. Give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Jesus is reaching out to these Jewish leaders and they are only plotting to kill Him. You're plotting right now. I want out of this room. I want out of this place. I don't have nothing to do with this Jesus. Oh my. There is a rock coming. It will crush you if you receive Him not. Bring, come to Him. Come to Jesus today. Bring your sins, confess them. Don't wait to straighten out and try to do better and get better and, and straighten yourself up. Come with all your sorrow, with all your sin, with all your pain, with all your suffering, with all your baggage. Bring it to Jesus today. God will bring fruit out of your life. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. And I pray that you'd impress upon people's hearts the urgency of knowing Christ in saving faith. May the gospel be clear. You died for our sins. You were raised again to give us eternal life. All upon those that believe. May there be those this morning that come believing on the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Grab your red hymnal, Sister Delcy. What song was it? Number Three seventy one. I believe it's have thine own way, Lord. Three seventy one. You come. Let the Lord have his way in your life. Three seventy one.